welcome. Uh, those of you who uh, might notice such details will notice that the uh, podcast was started at precisely four minutes past four. That's because this week it's Sonic Talk 404. Can you believe such a thing? It's astonishing. And we want to say thank you to uh, all of you guys in the chat room. We've got a nice... Uh, fulsome chat room as i do like to say and also we got a nice fulsome panel as well uh, and also want to say thank you very much to our sponsors who are obviously isotope uh, isotope will be announcing or i'll be announcing the details of a competition where you could win ozone 6.1 folks a fully functioning version straight to your account no strings attached. You just have to enter competition. But that will be coming up after about halfway through, something like that. Uh, and uh, also we'll be telling you a little bit about Ozone as well. So anyway, thank you very much for joining us. Um, that's it. 404 jokes, probably. That's it. Uh, so I'm going to go over here to Mr. Jem Godfrey, who I haven't seen for a very long time. Jem Godfrey is composer, producer, has roots in popular music, done a lot of stuff with kind of... Uh, High pop, I think it would be fair to say. In fact, I'm pretty sure, Jem, um, you sent me an email not that long ago saying I would like to be on the show, but I'm currently tuning vocals. So I'm guessing yes. you might have been working on a project, although I've rather spoiled it because you probably now don't want to tell me what that was. But <laughs> I figured I'd give it a try anyway. Uh, no, I've been doing I've been doing a lot of stuff um, uh, back on Planet Pop, doing a lot of uh, co-production with Gary Barlow. Wow. So we've been doing, um, he's doing a, he co wrote uh, the songs for a musical, Finding Neverland, which is on Broadway in New York, and uh, as opposed to any other Broadway. And uh, so, yeah, he, it's basically there's like an album of 17 tracks. So it's like an artist, rather than it being like um, like the sort of cast album, it's like artists, uh, Je- Jennifer Lopez and all kinds of Christian Aguilera, all kinds of different people. So, yeah, I kind of dropped in at the deep end, and that it has been brilliant fun. Wow, that sounds awesome. Gary Barlow, in case um, people don't know the name or made the association, he's obviously the kind of the main songwriting talent, production talent possibly behind Take That, who were kind of one of the original, I guess they were worldwide famous uh, bands. I don't know if they were huge yeah. over here. And they've recently had a resurgence, uh, smaller, less of them in the group, but they've been doing a sort of... Um, Sort of dad's a dad group, maybe rather than a boy band these days. But uh, he's dad, he's got a dad band. A dad band. He's got his fingers in a lot of pies. So you yeah. be, have you been actually working, you know, in the same room, or is it more of a remote collaboration, or how's it been working? Um, it's it's kind of been more remote. I mean, I had because obviously a lot of them are in America, so I've yeah. been stuck down here in Sussex. So it tends to come down the pipes, and then you work on it and just sort of bat it back. And because the problem is, of course, is doing a lot of stuff with America with LA. I'll sort of do a full day's work and then get to five o'clock and then they'll wake up and go, right, we want this changed and that changed. And so it's kind of, you know, like ends up being like 18 hour day. <laughs> but it's all right. Yeah. So what, what I have interest, what are you using for that uh, ping pong effect? Are you just doing ba- doing bounces and sending the mixes or are you working on open sessions via some clever uh, collaborative tool? We transfer. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's just emailing, emailing MP3s over and then, you know, full fat. Full fat mixes and stem. A lot of stems these days. I've noticed it's all changed since I was doing this before. Everybody wants stems of everything ever. Yeah, so, I can yeah. imagine that. That does tend to be the sort of thing that at the end of a long day you might want to automate and wake up and have it and know it's all done, <laughs> right? Yeah, I need a little man. <clears throat> yes, an assi- I think night. an assistant is what that's known as, isn't it, for that sort of thing? But I guess, uh, yeah, they're they're hard to come by because there aren't any proper studios anymore. So assistants don't really exist unless you can find a local a local help. Well, the good thing, I mean, Pro Tools Eleven has helped a lot because obviously I've been doing uh, offline bounces. But of course, the problem with that is if you if you've accidentally selected the wrong output, as I did, <laughs> sent about half a gigabyte's worth of silence to America. That went that went quite well. 
How did that go down? Did they, were, they, were they pleased with that particular version? I imagine oh, it. over the moon. Yeah, over the moon, over the moon. It was... Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that went well. Uh, yes. Actually, Jem, this is the best yet. If you could make the other ones more like this, then we'll all be happy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Rich Hilton was nodding sagely there because I'm guessing, you know, what with... Uh, uh, the work that Sheik's doing, I'm guessing the productions you do with Noel Rogers, uh, Noel Rogers, of course, being uh, the guy that you're working for in the studio and member of Sheik. You were nodding sagely there at the uh, at the STEM uh, creation part of what Jem was saying there, right? Yeah, well, it was perhaps more diplomatic than rolling my eyes. <laughs> I couldn't see. I've only got a very small window of... Uh, I, I can't make out the details, so that the, 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 the minutiae of body language is rather lost. You have to be more... Dramatic. That's probably for the best in this case because I was uh, extending the bird um, at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> probably no more. We won't say any more. Have you been doing many? Have you been working on stems this week or are you? Uh, no, 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 no. Actually, uh, I've been recently mixing some live uh, music that we've done because we have a gig coming up and uh, haven't played one in a while and uh, the band needs to hear where we left off. So I've actually been mixing a live show. Uh, we record our live shows to multi-track pretty much all the time, and uh, I've got tons and tons of them, and uh, they're they're fun, great fun, and a lot of work to mix. Yeah, I can imagine. I suppose if every every gig is a different venue, templates are less, uh, and also you I get different mic sets. I don't even start from there, but I'm a guy who never uses a preset on a piece of outboard gear anyway, so um, uh, I don't start really the live mixes from templates. I'd rather start fresh. Right. I can do it better tomorrow. Right. Well, that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. I also noticed nodding sagely there in the corner, Mr. Mark Doty, who we have uh, with us again. Mark Doty, of course, uh, worked with the Bog Movie Foundation, synthesizer reviewer, um, a happy um, recipient of, I think uh, we hear you have a Profit 6, um, which I think well, I've got some things to... <sighs> there it is. Look at that. What a lucky guy. So does that mean it's in production now? Uh, no, this is a beta uh, ah. that they sent me for demonstration. Uh, but I think it, I, I think it is in production. It's just that they're not uh, produced yet, according to my knowledge. Wow. So how, how long have you had it? I got it on last Friday. I right. Think. This is where you obviously, you know, obviously it took it took you a really long time to get the Korg Odyssey, whereas. I got the Cool Odyssey, and now I'm I, I don't I don't get the Dave Smith stuff too much later because it's the transatlantic thing, and they don't or they haven't up to now. They might do now. Had a distributors to send these things out, and I'm guessing they're not making perhaps as many of these as perhaps some of the other models. But uh, I'll just have to see you from afar. But you can hopefully tell us a little bit about uh, that shortly. Yes, yes, I sort of measure my success in demonstrating a synth if I can get it before Nick Bat, which almost <laughs> never happens. So I, I might have to gloat a fair amount during yeah, this whole Yeah, okay. Year. That's understandable. I've, I, I, of course, I would like to point out, I try not to myself. You know, I'm not, I, you know that's, not something, that's not in my nature. So I, I, don't wanna, I don't want it to get too unpleasant. Just keep it clean. <laughs> anyway, Mark, great to have you aboard. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, there, in what looks like very sunny climbs, is uh, Mr. Dave Spears from G4 Software in the Synth Cave. You look like you've got a load of bubble wrap over that, your uh, right shoulder there. Oh, yeah, that's uh, protecting that polygamist. <laughs> that just like, sounds like something that you wouldn't want to admit yeah. to, is it? I, yeah, how can you yes. protect a polygamist? That's an un, that's an untenable position to take. <laughs> I'm hiding a polygamist under some bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what we do over here occasionally. Yeah, well, it's a hideout. 
for those ne'er-do-wells that are so common, commonly found. After all, us Brits are always uh, playing baddies in American films, so I guess it would tie in very very nicely. You've got one under the bubble wrap right there. Anyway, yes. Dave, nice to have you aboard. Um, been, had a good week? Everything going all right for you? Yeah, very interesting week. Uh, went to something super secret last night, which obviously I can't talk about, but that was really good fun. And <laughs> I'm starting to embark on upgrading my entire system, which is incredibly... Entire what? Computer system? Yes. Or new just computer, the... new monitors, new audio interface, all of that. Uh, I think the idea is to freeze the one that we've got, you know, kind of go, right, that's it. It stays like that because we're going to have to refer to it constantly and then kind of start fresh. So does that mean ultimately you're going to end up in a situation where you actually, you know, say, I don't know, say five, six years down the line, you've got three or four complete systems all in that space that you need to fire up at any given time? Yeah, but we've done that since, you know, from time immemorial. I've still got, I've still got like three Ataris. That if I need to refer to them, it's always that safety thing, isn't it? Oh, maybe one day I'll need to kind of go around. But this I will, you know, because I've got like terabytes and terabytes of data and it's just like, I don't really want to pull that over. I just want to refer to it. I like this idea of starting afresh. But, dude, the price of... It's not so much the gear. It's things like Thunderbolt cables. If you want a really long Thunderbolt cables, that's like that's like a recipe for bankruptcy. Mm, almost as <laughs> much as the CPU. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yes, I might be picking people's brains after. Well, unfortunately, we don't actually have uh, any problems with upgrading here because I think the newest machine I have is this laptop. Uh, Our main machine is a 2009 Mac Pro, which is still going strong, um, fingers crossed. Uh, Across everything, actually, because we're using it right at the minute. That's a really stupid thing to say, I've just realised. Anyway, um, so let's move on. Um, We've got a topic that um, one of the reasons I wanted to get Mark on is because he has some experience of this. So I will play. uh, Oh, I need to do it on this, actually, because it's it's not a video I could get hold of. So I'm just going to go here. This is the the, uh, Paul Vaux wand. So let me just play a little bit of this video. Uh, How's that? That looks good. Wand spelt with a dub with an O. This is uh, known as the String Exciter. Welcome to our Kickstarter campaign. I'm Paul Vo. What if you had a magnetic string exciter as easy to use as a pick? Imagine the wand. It would have to be light and fast so you could play fluidly with soft attacks and endless sustain. You'd want to be able to control timbre as each note evolves. Wow, there's a lot of stuff on that. Prototype. It's a little rough on the outside but the electronics work well. You're hearing straight electric guitar with just a little reverb. Right, I'm not going to play the whole thing, but that basically, if you're aware of Paul Vaux, Paul Vaux's got some very unique and unusual technology that we first saw in the Moog guitar, uh, which was 2008, I believe, uh, where you have individual excitement built into all of the strings. Plus, it had a, 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 a Moog filter in it as well. Um, so it had some quite unusual tones. I must admit, I found the overtones of that initial guitar a little bit unusual. And I think this new technology, which is also present in the uh, Vo 96 acoustic sort of thing, which is like a... It, it reminds me of one of those things that stick on your face in Alien, <laughs> but you put it on your guitar and it's got a whole bunch of kind of uh, like... Um, predator type buttons on it that uh, that excite the different strings and also accentuate different uh, harmonics now the wand is i guess you know that 
the easiest comparison to make is the Ebo, you know, because it's a it's a, a, a transduction kind of steel string thing, and his things work on uh, uh, acoustic guitars and electric guitars, and, and um, this one th- this sounds like a, a more interesting project. I mean, it's actually on uh, Kickstarter, uh, which has I think it's actually passed its goal, so they were hoping to raise thirty five k. They've got up to nearly forty, and they've still got eighteen days to go. So obviously, this has got s- some people quite interested. I don't know. Uh, Ebo's not massively in in vogue at the moment, but this has something else. And I, the reason I'm asking Mark is because I know Mark's had some some experience of it. So. Um, is there anything you'd care to add, being as I'm a completely uh, uneducated uh, <laughs> as far as this goes? Well, yeah, I'm no guitarist, which is hilarious. But this technology, it's really cool. It's like a sort of, to some degree, it's kind of like a portable version of the technology that Paul has in the Mo guitar and the Vone 96. It's, it's taking the string excitement aspect of that technology and putting it in a portable way instead of it being built into the guitar and it's it's a lot different than the ebo because ebo is just a general i mean it it generates this sort of general field that excites the uh the string whereas the wand does what the mo guitar and the vo 96 do where it actually interacts with the string and responds to the string to generate the outcomes that you're generating so there's like a lot of technology going on in the interaction between the string and the wand itself, which allows a whole bunch of like really expressive things like, for example, the control of harmonics, which I think is absolutely magical. And um, also you, you get like much more, much quicker attacks with this device because of how it interacts with the string. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's an expressive thing. It's not a thing that just sort of goes on the guitar or that, uh, you know, generates an outcome. It's a thing that you are specifically doing with intention expressively. And that's why it's, it's really special. I got to play with it. Like, um, I got to, I know Paul, Paul lives here in Asheville and I actually got to play with one just before he announced it at NAM, And it was just a really magical experience to actually have this thing. Um, I played the earlier version. Uh, there's the production version is going to be a little bit different, but uh, even with the early version, it was it was really a neat experience. Ah, interesting. And um, Jem, I mean, I can see you have some uh, stringed instruments on your wall behind you. I'm guessing yeah. you you might have the capability of playing them, or I don't know. They might just be there for show. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm making all sorts of assumptions here. No, as we know that you are a keyboard player of some note. Have you ever experienced with that? Uh, had, played with those kind of things with the string excited did you ever get a chance to try the mo guitar or any of that no i, I mean i do i play I, those ones behind me they're just for hand-to-hand combat but these <laughs> uh, the thing I, actually, I, I do actually play a stick bloody hell uh, i do use an ebo on it so i'm actually very interested to try that because that's exactly i mean i use as i say the ebo is brilliant on like that because you can place it on the i play it flat i don't play it like that um, and you can just place the ebo on top of the on top of the sort of one of the strings, and it can you just can basically just solo endlessly. It's a fantastic sound. But I'd be really interested to try that because that's I'm sort of all about trying different techniques with with instruments like that. So yeah, that does sound kind of cool. I, I'm curious to know as to um, how I mean with with some of the lower strings. Is it how fast is it, Mark? Because I mean, obviously, it takes a little while to generate the energy in those strings if you're not actually percussively hitting them. 
Well, I think that's the the sort of magic of this device is it it doesn't take very long. It's not like you have to wait for it to happen. I had to wait for it to happen because like I don't have the technical proficiency with it to really I mean it takes a few minutes to sort of get the hang of how to place it and where to place it and that's going to improve with the production model that's going to have like the haptic feedback like it will vibrate as it gets close to the string so you can actually feel where the strings are without looking at them which I think is really cool and I I could have used that because I spent a lot of the time going you know trying to figure out how to get my hands to like have the muscle memory to place it right in the right place but when you do place it in the right place it's you know it's not like a pluck but it is pretty much instantaneous Mm, that's interesting I I know um, Rich you play guitar as well I've seen you uh, there's one I can see it in the corner there sometimes you you used to used to play between between topics when we were obviously uh not cover it well when you're practicing or whatever have you i mean presumably you've tried an ebo have you tried any of the porvo technology stuff no i haven't and it looks like it would be fun to do so actually it probably is uh, a lot of fun to use um i think related to your question about the uh the attack time basically which is sort of what you were getting at yeah. is how close how close to an actual pick attack do you get you don't get that 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 front looking thing that you know that sharp angled thing that you get with a pick attack but based on how quickly you bring it towards the string and how intensely it's affecting the string um you can alter the amount of attack time based on the way with most magnetic devices and i assume with this thing um it's interesting because there's a history of Devices that attempt to excite a guitar string in non-traditional ways, meaning not with a pick and not with your fingers. Yes, and, we, covered, uh, we covered the Gizmotron once, didn't we? The Gizmotron, uh, the Ebo, are both part of that history. This is now part of that, or hopes to be part of that history. Um, I will say that I think 200 bucks is too much, and I don't think he's going to sell very many of them at 200 bucks. Um, you may well be right, but I'm guessing, I mean, looking at that technology, it's not like just a, a battery and a coil like an Evo. There's obviously a lot I more going in it. I don't about it. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah, you can't sell so. this to very many people for 200 bucks. If you want to sell a lot of them, you got to sell it for 120 bucks. Well, maybe it, maybe maybe with scaling it will come down. One thing that might be interesting, what happens if you kind of put a pick on it and so you get the attack and then you bring it in? Do you could, would, it, would it be possible to play in combination mm-hmm. with a pick? I wonder... That's a good question. And that's one of the cool things about like this, the experience with it is we were constantly saying, well, what happens if we do this? We did the, like the first test of what happens when you actually use it with the Vo 96. And uh, that had some, it wasn't really huge response, but there were some interesting outcomes. But yeah, um, you could theoretically pick and then use it. You could put a pick on it. I could see that happening. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I have but, a feel. I have a feeling because uh, our guitar team talked to Paul at NAM, and I think that he might have even mentioned something about that about doing a combination of the two. But I, I, I've, I've, I've not checked the video out in recent months, so I couldn't couldn't testify to that. But it sounds like there could be a bunch of things. I know Dave is not. I mean, I'm guessing you're not a guitarist, so um, perhaps it's not going to be your number one go to core. Uh, but is there, is there any other sort of similar keyboard type? Uh, uh, agitators, exciter type things that, uh, that, that one could use. I don't think there is, I suppose, in, in, unless you... No, not that I really know of. be interesting to use it on piano or something. I mean, we tried that. Piano strings, that would be interesting. Yeah, we did try it with ebos years ago. I think the thing that I quite like about this, and I know everyone's constantly going to make comparisons to the Ebo purely because it does vibrate the string, 
but that you unlike an ebow you're not limited to one string you know you sit on the adjacent strings with an ebow with the with the main string that's vibrated in the center whereas this you can play across it and stuff i was talking to somebody about it last night it's kind of weird in a way in fact there's two things about this my first thought when i first saw it i thought it's more suited to your mate Duke with a name like the Wand and <laughs> yes. like his business, and also it looks kind of sex toy like. But also, um, it would be—I'd probably buy it for two hundred if it doubled as a taser. I think that would be <laughs> really good thing. I but, well, uh, that does interest. I mean, because obviously they must they must have to hold a reasonable amount of charge. You know anything about the battery life or any of that stuff or what's going on in there? Is it rechargeable or is it replaceable? Or what do you know? What that's. It is rechargeable. You just plug it in. And I think Paul has talked about, like, I don't know, I might be lying about this, but I remember him vaguely talking maybe about some sort of Bluetooth charging. But, yeah, it has an adapter that you plug into. And Paul went to a lot of work to figure out uh, which battery would be appropriate, best for this situation and the most powerful. And really, when you pick the thing up, it's like I I picked it up. And it it was like picking up, I don't know, this which is just a little piece of plastic. And I was like, how can something that controls as much as this does be so light and small and have a powerful battery in it that's powerful enough to shake strings back and forth? I don't know. The whole thing was um, like magical to me. But yeah, you uh, it's rechargeable. And uh, actually, I heard Paul say how long the battery would last if you just held it to a string constantly. And it was... a it was something like six hours, which you would never ever do. So it actually lasts a long time. Right. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, so yeah. So those are the kind of things. I mean, he's obviously a, a craftsman in terms of design, and I think uh, I, I think the other thing is because of a lot his other products. The, certainly, the Vo ninety six requires you to kind of retrofit to, in many cases, quite expensive and valuable acoustic instruments, which you know people are going to be a little bit nervous about perhaps from time to time but yeah anyway interesting stuff if you want to check that out Paul Vo Kickstarter product, project it's got 18 days to go if you pick you can pick one up for I think it's uh, 199 um, there's one there's a slightly cheaper version if uh, you get one of the kind of uh, 179 if you get the gamma run but they've all gone so uh, that 20 bucks is so you're going to be paying the full one I'm going to go to the next topic now um, oh actually no I'll tell you what let's do the competition because uh, um, it just feels like a good time to do it so uh, first of all a message from our sponsors he said pressing the button vigorously <laughs> it's supposed to work there we go isotope of course ozone 6.1 uh, the go-to mastering program for many has so many different modules equalizer dynamics maximizer exciter imager post equalizer dither dynamic eq which is advanced only there is an advanced and a regular version for many people it's you know slap it across the stereo bus produce the master but you can use it on individual tracks as well it's got a lot of capabilities in there you can make smarter mixed decisions aided by robust real-time visual feedback and you can quickly achieve authentic sounds in every genre of with a comprehensive bank of pre and in fact, Isotope have lots and lots of tutorial stuff and ways to use it. So if you want to check out uh, Ozone 6.1, you're into mastering, or you just want to improve the quality of specific tracks in a mix, do try it out. Isotope.com forward slash Iris. As with many of their products, it's a 10-day free demo. But if you're lucky enough to win our competition, then... Uh, you won't have to buy it at all. So let me just go to last week's winner. We had, as uh, episode 403, obviously we're in 404 now, uh, we picked a winner from last week's uh, entries, and that chap is called Dodecahedron, uh, and his Twitter handle is at Dodeca, D-O-D-E-C-A-3, 
Dodeca 3. And uh, he said, quite simply, I need to finalise my mixes, which seems like a fairly reasonable thing to put in the additional uh, comments that you have in the uh, Twitter uh, because we ask you to send a tweet. So if you want to get in touch, Mr. Dodecahedron, Dodeca 3, then uh, the Isotope Ferry will deposit uh, Ozone 6.1 in your account. But if you're interested in winning for this week, we have another competition uh, because Isotope sponsor the show. You can win Isotope Ozone 6.1. You need to be on Twitter and you need to tweet the hashtag the hashtag the mix doctor in one word and the hashtag ozone six so the mix doctor and ozone six to at sonic state and at isotope inc um you do have 140 characters uh so that gives you a number of other characters to uh i just want to see if that would give me a count anyway the rest of the characters you can write something witty or or something that uh, that we can read anyway it's uh, it's certainly we do like to have additional comments so once again we thank isotope for sponsoring the show right and next let's get straight on to the next topic which uh if i remember correctly if i press this button here <coughs> this button here this is stereo ping or stereo ping this is synth controller demo um basically they make these uh dedicated controllers for synths that basically frankly have awful user interfaces so this is the tx81z fast forward it a little bit so what's interesting about this is you've got access to all the individual operators and they they, they do bespoke ones for all sorts of other uh, synthesizers as well waldorf stuff think some of the kawaii early kawaii stuff so those sort of crappy 80 synthesizers all the good ones that just had crappy interfaces you can now bring them and i really like some of the sounds that were coming out of this it's sort of sounding quite fresh in terms of what we're used to generally speaking so i'm quite uh, interested by this now i don't know if anybody ever did back in the day get into fm synthesis i know mark you perhaps don't have a great love of the dx7 historically <laughs> but perhaps if i go to uh, if i go to mr lee groves who perhaps uh, may in his earlier productions was uh, was using fm stuff and i know we've talked in the past about fm being a kind of rather forgotten synthesis uh, style because it's just so goddamn difficult to to get inside got a dx8 one groves so, oh, did I? Gem got, why did I say that? That's bizarre. There is a striking similarity, isn't there? I'm sorry about that, Gem. That's yeah. There, there is, is. There is. A, there is actually. You've got. Right, more, you've right, got. Right, you've right, got much off. more hair. You've got much more hair, and you're far more successful. Anyway, Gem. I'm sorry got, about that. We've got a DX. Uh, we've got a DX one here. Funnily enough, to my right, you can't see it, but it's. Uh, I can't. I can't lift it either, for obvious reasons. Um, it's. Uh, I've got a Supermax E thing in it. So it's um, it's like got an arpeggiator and it's it's unison mode and all kinds of bits and pieces. Oh. So it's, and it is a pain to program, I've got to say. So that would, sort of thing would be quite interesting. But to be honest, I kind of I still struggle a bit with FM. I, it's it's I don't know. It's just it just it's either that lately based thing or lots of clanging. And apart from that, <laughs> I can't really. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean, but uh, I, I, th I think it has more to give. Definitely, I, I do apologise for misnaming you there. Um, I'm Change the that. name on the thingy. Yeah, no, I would if it, if it was something I could do. It doesn't say Lee Groves, does it? God, flip neck. That would be really embarrassing. No, that it doesn't. Anyway, um, sorry about that, Gem. Um, I don't know, um, Rich, because there are some classic little synths that have. Yes. 
that have. Ah, you just unmuted yourself there, didn't you? I was nearly, nearly, ne- someone nearly got a drink. Where were we at? 47 minutes. So we're only about 30, uh, 20, 20, um, 28 minutes. I'm in the minutes. chat teasing them now. That's funny. <laughs> um, the idea of this, I mean, it's not, it's not unheard of. I mean, we know people make controllers and have made controllers for eons. I mean, Dave, uh, will, I'm sure, be able to tell us about because he's made hardware controllers as well. I mean, it's but opening up Roland, something that... Roland made a whole business out of it with, with their instruments... In these days, when these instruments were being produced, user interfaces were what I used to call a hole in the fence of a construction site where you have this tiny little pinhole through which you're examining this vast world behind it. And um, Roland's stuff at the time, the D550 and uh, the MKS70, and they, they, all, they made hardware controllers for all that stuff because they knew it was a pain in the ass to operate. Everybody told them. And uh, 81Z was very much one of those. It was a great synth. Took FM to a whole nother level with multiple waveforms, four operator FM, and uh, offered a whole lot of really cool synthesis options, but it was just a real pain in the ass to operate, but it was actually a really cool synth. So this is actually a really neat box for people who want to use that. And as for FM, we all <laughs> used it. We loved it. We embraced it like it was the new thing. It was, it was the buzzword. Everybody dug it. And it still, to this day, does certain things better than anything else. So... Um, it's a wonderful thing. And I still use it. I quite like, uh, native instruments, FM instruments and, uh, use them quite often for things where I need a very clear mid range presence. And quite often I will also distort them, um, because they kind of speak a little bit more like guitars than most, uh, synthesizers do. So you can do some very interesting mid rangey things with FM instruments in the midst of a sea of analog stuff that allows them to stick out without being obviously FM. Um, but anyway, I love the stuff and, uh, I'm thrilled. I thought this was a kind of a cool, interesting niche device that they de- built. The funny thing is I went to their website, clicked on, what do you guys make? And I got basically a blank page with two cables on it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's really funny because yesterday we ran a story on this because I spotted this video. And I thought, oh, great. And it's a really neat, I think I gave it a kind of rather uh, link bait kind of headline, which is uh, something to do with making an FM synth uh, usable. And now there's no product left. <laughs> I don't know whether they've sold out or whether perhaps, you know, there's a, it's updating the range or it's just one of those timing issues. I really don't know. But uh, I think uh, they are, they are in kit form. They, they're 225 euros. This is what I remember because it's not there anymore. Um, and it's about 40, it's 40 things. And you basically sort it all out yourself. But I think they are different for each synth. I don't think it's just a question of a new... I don't think there's a different um, set of switch because some of them are, are multi-position switches for for selecting waveforms, for instance, in certain other synthesizers. And some of them are just kind of dials, like like they seem to be in the TX81Z version. But yeah, I mean, it's not a not a cheap thing. But I mean, if you think it could open up the world of one of those synths that you know, Dave, that you know, three perhaps times you- three times what somebody would have paid for the 81Z, actually. Really? How much was it when it came out? Was it that cheap? Oh, no, 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 no. Back uh, then it was expensive. But, but in the intervening years, you could have bought one for 50 bucks. Probably still You probably can. could have taken one from a garage sale for 20 bucks. I mean, there were pe- people basically using them f- to hold the door open. Ah, future door stops. Door yes. stops passed, even. Very small doors in some cases because, you know, it's light. It's a single rack space. Yeah, I suppose so. Oh, no, Dave, uh, Dave you've... Um, no, three is Dave. That's right, Dave. Uh, you've actually you've created a controller. I mean, you know, and, and in many ways, I'm sure the the uh, was it the Fat Boy? Was that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. Could have probably 
controlled a, uh, one of those if you programmed it up. But this just looks, I mean, I like the idea. I mean, and you've done the, the you know, worked with the people who made the Oscar, Imposca controller. And it really changes your relationship with any instrument, doesn't it? If it hasn't got those front panel controls. I see you're holding something there. <laughs> Ooh, uh, flipping yeah. you want to, This is the really funny thing, right? This is the there dust is. on it. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> vintage dust, man. That's, that's analog dust. Isn't it? But is that something that you're not using because you're not using the instrument or because you yeah. only bought... Yeah. yeah, right. Only because the display's packed up on the MKS. But um, no, it does. It changes everything. This is this really did remind me of the Fat Boy because we, we did little overlays and stuff. My question with this was... I mean, it, it the Fat Boy was really simple and it was designed to overcome the whole GSXG. In fact, AWE sound cards, the old Creative Lab sound cards, because they were shipping something like 250,000 of those cards a month in Europe. And we were like, wow, it's got an interesting chip on it. You know, it sounded okay. But for me, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, stuff for Roland Soundcam buys, I suppose, plural. And uh, I didn't like that wallpaper and through a letterbox thing. So it kind of came from that. And then uh, we took it to... Steinberg were our distributor at the time. They had a division in Germany called Direct Services and we took it to them and Manfred, they were just about to distribute Rebirth and he said, you should put a CC mode on it because the AWE and the GS and XG stuff were non-registered parameters, all NRPNs. And uh, he said, you should just put a controller mode on it as well and we'll take X amount. And that kind of kick-started the whole thing for us. And we did, we did pretty well out of it. But it was kind of like a band, really, you know. We were kind of fighting the world. And then when we started selling quite a lot of these, it was like, it was my idea. No, I found it. It was my PA. <laughs> so that was the kind of demise of that uh, business. But um, I've always, and that essentially, was when the Imposca 2 controller came into it, the, the frustration I had with the Fat Boy was that you didn't have this one-to-one correlation between the position of the knobs and the position of the controls on the interface and that kind of interrupted the flow even though it was amazing and to be honest we could have made a fat boy with like three knobs on it because everyone went for fill cutoff resonance and pan or something you know yeah um i think at one point we did have a little prototype but people like dope for coming and do it for like super cheap and you can't compete but, do, I mean, but we, yeah, we did really well and this I, I, this really reminded me of that i really liked it in fact it sounded I like FM. There's something about FM. It's got a very broad it's, frequency it's range. That I'm... A really funny story in that Andy Shilito put me in touch with a, this singer, this girl singer who's been signed and is promising to be quite a big deal. And she called and said, oh, could, would you teach me how to use my favourite synthesizer? And I was like, oh, what is it? She went a DX7. And I was like, dude, no one's asked me that for like 25 <laughs> years. So that was kind of weird. But yeah, you know, um, the unders uses it obviously you know uses it um and the mark one is a in fact i was recounting a story last night i did a gig a million years ago and none of the gear had turned up at this gig in switzerland so i was kind of cobbling together bits of gear from other bands including like billy idol and whatnot and i reprogrammed their dx7 to so that we could get through our set and i forgot to put their patches back on it as i was walking up the hill all of a sudden, it was like, ah, as they went on. Anyway, that was quite funny. Ah, uh, yes. I, I but have... yeah, cool. I like gizmos like this. I think... and, that, and for me, this sounded interesting, you know? 
It did, and 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 like you said, Rich, that you know the TX eight was that did have you know the the fact that um, because most of the other ones just had sine waves, so the fact that you could change the waveforms is interesting. I know, Mark. I mean, you know, you're a keen synthesist. I mean, you know, we one can create FM patches with analogs and modular stuff, and one often does, but it's it's almost harder. It's it's just as difficult to control in the analog world as it is in the digital world. Well, I always say the thing that I don't like about FM is that it's a really abstract mathematical concept. Not that it isn't capable of creating cool sounds or even a lot of the, you know, all the analog sounds, although without the analog quality. But still, I mean, as a synthesis, it's super powerful and it creates some really interesting things. But its biggest problem has always been uh, the fact that it's very abstract, although you can learn it. And then the interface has always been terrible because it was right there at that point where, uh, well, and part of my hatred for the DX7 is philosophical more than anything. It's that when it arrived, it created a preset culture. Yeah. And, yeah. and it was terrible. It, had, it was inexpensive. It was totally polyphonic. And, well, not totally polyphonic, but you know what I mean. And then it created this preset culture where synthesists became people who – chose that awful, awful electric piano sound, which I, I don't know if I can forgive a DX7 for that, but yeah. Um, but this idea is fantastic. I totally endorse this concept. I had a Yamaha PSS 680, the one that has the big blue drum buttons under the keys, and it had a really basic FM section that was so fun to use because – you, you, there was no menu diving. It was just buttons and increments. And it was, it was super easy. And I loved it. I was like, I'm doing FM and no one knows, but, uh, <laughs> <Your> dirty secret. <laughs> I've told, I've said it. People are listening to me now. Uh, but no, I think this is a great idea and I wish people would really pursue it like on a larger scale. Wow. Jim Jeff- played the Doogie House a theme tune, wasn't it, Mark? Jem <laughs> <laughs> has Jem has right there. I can see it. And he's got the DX7. It was a heavy old thing. Wasn't thing is it? heavy. <laughs> and you've got you've got the ROM you've got the uh, ROM cartridge in there as well. Is that the factory oh, yeah. sounds or what? What have you? Or was that one of the Mega ROM? What did they call those things? The it's. Oh, I can tell you what. I need to go to the gym after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you don't. It's heavy. You see that? It's the Master yeah. Group Keyboard and Plucked. There you Plucked. go. Oh, sure. <laughs> got I can tell you use it a lot, right. But, but the, other, the other thing, I mean, the also, the, programs right the, other, the other thing that's, uh, that's uh, easy to forget is that actually at the time it had quite an unusual keyboard feel. It was that sort of semi-weighted sprung sort of thing, which I guess meant that, that also gained quite a lot of popularity with players who were perhaps coming from more of a weighted keyboard or piano side of things that needed a keyboard. I mean, like, oh, I can do, you know, my clav and, yeah, sort of organy kind of sounds as well. I mean, it, it did – some of the emulation I, – I never forget um, – there was uh, there was a band who came into a club where I used to do a lot of sound called Jazz Jamaica, and um, uh, I think a lot of the guys had come over from Jamaica to be in the band, and they were the brilliant horn players. They just did that kind of classic ska reggae, and the, the guy who played the piano – was using a DX7 the whole time, and he had a DX7 piano patch on it, which is really shockingly awful. It really doesn't sound anything like a piano at all, but, you know, you did just have to make do with what you could get. And it's not so good at some of those things. So, Rich, you look like you wanted um, to come in there. Well, I, I, there's a whole bunch of stuff I need to address here. First of all, <laughs> there were some people back then doing things with breath controllers and DF7s yeah. that were stunning. 
Second of all, DX7 was not the beginning of the preset culture, though it certainly did a lot to advance it because it, right. it was so complicated compared to what people had seen before that people were more reliant on those presets than they might have been on previous instruments. But by the time DX7 appeared, we had three or four years of nonstop preset-filled instruments that had been released. So that culture was already well underway. Now, it was definitely um, spurred on by the uh, appearance of the DX7. And people love those presets. It's a testament to how well they wrote those presets in terms of how popular that instrument became for the time that it did, at least until the D50 showed up, um, which was Persing's work, I believe, in the programming. But anyway, uh, so there's that. <laughs> And and it doesn't do, you see, if you evaluate it in terms of how well it does what all of what came before it did, then you don't get to see what it's good at. Because it's really good at certain things. And people were doing a lot of really interesting things, often with racks of eight of them. But nevertheless, um, we're doing some really interesting things with them at the time that weren't just the tinkly roads and the yeah. the familiar tubular bell, although that tubular bell was magnificent. Um it's a testament to how well programmed it was that it did do as well as it did and that it did rely so heavily on those presets because they knew people weren't going to be able to program this thing. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Dave, I, I, I seem to remember, Dave, there's a – what was the name of the chat? We, was it Dave Gamson? Did we have him no. on? Oh, oh, yeah, Dave yeah. Gamson. All the scrutability stuff was done on uh, – Yeah, I mean, uh, TX8. TX is it TX802 or TX – what was the big rack of things? I forget the what eight, it was. One, two, uh, 816. TX816 yes, was the – Yes, 816. That's it. The 8 rack was the 816. And then the DX72 – and then the T, there was a TX816, which was two rack spaces, which basically took the DX72 architecture and laid it across multiple engines. And um, it's cool. Yes, yeah. you know. the DX1s go for quite a lot of money now. Oh, I love one of those. And they reckon that the A to D converters are very different in those, so you don't get that kind of real FM aliasing that goes on. But there's something... In fact, I was fortunate I was able to use a DX7 back in the day with one of those... Remember those Jellinghouse controllers? The massive thing. It's about the size oh, of a small wow. house. And that was quite something, because, you know, it looks... FM synthesis looks impenetrable. When you look at a DX7 and you're like, oh, okay, so we've got these stacks and these operators and these algorithms and you're trying to make sense of it but when, when it's actually laid out in this control. And that's what I thought was really cool about this controller. Um, once you start looking at it in a kind of... Logically funny, laid out way, yeah. I've got this, yeah, we've got this big thing that, you know, yeah, analog's great. It's a bit kind of... It's a bit, you know, it's obviously super, super duper popular at the minute. Analog's great, but I think a lot of companies have kind of missed the point in that the tactile control is everything. There's room for everything, but really that tactile control that, is... That's maybe the thing that's the most... Yeah, that's. A, I think that's a very fair point. But um, like I say, I, I, I have messaged... Uh, it's called Gregor Zoll, which is a fantastic name, uh, to say, so what happened to the stock? Um, and I'm hoping that I'll get a reply. I might have had one. Uh, no, I haven't had one yet. Um, not yet. So uh, maybe there will be one forthcoming. But just... It might be worth re revisiting some of those synths that are sort of dusted in the cupboard that you wouldn't touch because they're such a nightmare to program if you can plug some of this into it. Sorry, the one question about this is, uh, obviously it showed the CC uh, mapping going on, but you see a lot of synths, like a lot of synths back in those days were only controllable via SysX and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. And there was a massive lag on 
stuff like that, particularly yeah. down at midi but it was like whoa is this going to work or is it going to just crash this and it really clogged it up didn't it yes i, I remember because I, I was involved in early uh, patch librarians which use system exclusive and i spent a lot of time with my head inside um the backs of the old roller manuals for particularly the d110 had pages and pages of parameters in in basically hex code that you could access but it was never much fun but there is an the complete antithesis to that is um, what Mark has got in his uh, in his arsenal at the moment, which is the Prophet Six Hundred. I've got um, uh, I, I have I got. Just... Let me see. You you sent. Oops, I've just renamed the file rather than play. I have to go. Uh, <laughs> I can't oh, watch this. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's see if I can play this. Let's let's have a listen. So this is some of the stuff that you put in here now. You were playing some patches in this, Mark. This is like a three-minute track. Yeah. Unless it's got a lot of silence in it at the end. Do you have a long fade on it? Maybe. Uh, There's a lot of different sounds. Oh, I can hear that. So, I mean, how did you... How do you let me just pass it forward a little bit. I'll try and make... I'll, maybe I'll upload this and people can check this out at their leisure. Oh, that sounds quite uh, radical. So, what I mean, what is it about the um, the six hundred that immediately grabbed you? Because I mean, everybody, most of the people on the panel, know Robbie Bronneman was gagging for one. I don't know how how you feel about one, Gem. I mean, you know, I know you like analog stuff, but obviously, in your job, you know, repeatability and reliability are a kind of issue as well, and time. <laughs> so, um, I don't, you may well be craving one as well. But uh, that's I've got one in order, actually. Have you? Oh, well, there we go. So. <laughs> So I'm pretty sure everybody is quite interested to hear what you say. So, you know, what sort of first impressions are, Mark? Um, it is, I suppose it's really natural for you to assume like, okay, if it's Prophet 6, uh, everyone's bringing stuff back from the past. Uh, so Dave Smith is going to bring back the Prophet 5 in a more modern version or whatever. And so when I turned it on, I just was like expecting like here. Okay, so the Prophet 12 is their hardcore synthesis polyphonic synthesizer. This is going to be kind of an analog treat sort of synthesizer. Uh, but what I found out was that it's it's super powerful for an analog synth. I mean, it's it's not just, hey, let's play analog chords. There's It's possible, like I've said elsewhere, you can actually use a thing for sound design. It's, it's really, it's functionally powerful because it's so rare that you have uh, an analog polyphonic that has you can modulate the oscillators. Yep, carry on. <laughs> you can modulate the oscillators and filter with oscillators and that sort of thing, which are usually functions that were shaved off of polyphonic synthesizers, uh, especially in the past. They didn't really put all of the fun like synthesis aspects into it, like this has, and the fact that it has two oscillators. Uh, it has a high pass filter, which, you know, I love the CS50 um, because of that. A polyphonic sense should always have a resonant high pass filter, and this has that. So, like, you're, you get the, the diversity of sound it is capable of is not just about analog, it's also about synthesis. And I think that's one of the things that I found most exciting about it. Does it offer any multi-timbrality, any splits or anything like that? Or is it pretty much, that's it, six voices and you're, you're, you're good to go? I, of course, haven't done any of the MIDI exploration, but as far as I can see, there are not splits now. Right, okay. Um, one of the other cool things that I love about it is the fact that it has a unison function. And I typically hate 
analog unison functions because who wants to hear you know eight oscillators stacked on top of each other it makes one specific type of sound and i've always hated it my first sense was this juno 106 and i just skipped that stacking because six dcos on top of each other is awful it's a terrible sound uh, anyway um I'm, someone's like no it isn't mark doty how dare you anyway um, but this synthesizer allows you to decide how many oscillators are in your monophonic mode. So it's a full-on monosynth as well, and a powerful one. And I love yeah. that. I mean, it covers all the bases. Oh, that sounds good. Has it got a two-pole filter mode? Because that's something that I'm really starting to dig. I don't know. There's been a couple of – since I had the Dominion one, and there's a, a couple of other German synths that have just two-pole. And I love the sound of two-pole filters. It's really an unusual – it seems to be quite an unexplored. I mean, the Moog uh, Sub-37 here has got it as well, and it's definitely – on poly sounds, it just sounds fabulous. I use that a lot on the Pro 2, but on the Prophet 6, the, uh, the low pass is four-pole, and the high pass is two-pole. Right. Okay. So, anybody got any questions there um, who hasn't had their hands on one? I, uh, yeah, there we go. Dave, Dave's coming in. <laughs> go ahead, caller. Can I have one? Um, no, um, is the Unison... I oh, know we're talking about Unison, but is it detunable? Um, detune across the voices. Um, you can detune... Here are the two things you can do. You can detune oscillator one from oscillator two, and there's a function called slop... <laughs> which basically uh, it makes the oscillators, all of them, pitch unstable. So they drift around a little bit. And uh, so it can really – the first sound I made on that uh, – the file that I gave to Nick, I had that relatively – well, not relatively high, but I had it up there because it generates amazing chorusing by having all of those oscillators right. not quite in tune with each other. And you can turn it up to the point where it's just a noise. I mean it, it gets really out of tune with everything. But so you do have the option of detuning the oscillators like uh, – the first oscillator and the second oscillator. And then slot sets. between yeah. the sets. Of, all right, okay. I see. And then, and then if you slot punch between that into all unison, the rest. Right. You still retain that if you punch it into unison. Because that's the thing right. that frustrated me about the 5 and the 10 is like, particularly the 10, you've got all these voices and I like unison, but there has to be a detune function on there, otherwise it just sounds a bit kind of everything in, out of weird, in phase too much, horrible. But that's right. for me. I want this 6 and I want it... I mean, we've got a five and we've got a ten. I've got six hundred, but uh, I want it because I really the one thing I've missed out of everything on the sequential stuff is uh, LFO sample and hold waveform, which sounds insanely trite, but for me that's <laughs> quite important. I know, isn't it weird? You know, it's just like I want it just because of that, just because of that. Right. It's on. But I heard a demo today as well. There's a there's a new Strymon effects. Uh, I know Mark's Mark's stuff's great. And uh, but there's this, there's this guy Peter Dyer, and it was like how to sell me an effects pedal because there was no whittling. There's like I said on my Facebook thing, there's no ego. It's just like this really classy playing. And I see he had a Prophet Six, and I was just like, oh my god, the combination of this new Strymon pedal and this Prophet Six, I'm gonna melt. What does the Strymon pedal do? Does anybody? It's even... a new. It's a new thing. It's like a. It's a digital thing as opposed right. to you know emulating an analog thing. And I think it's a bit like the Ursa. The Ursa Major. Uh, anyway, for, it's really interesting. For those of you on tip, um, it, that there's the Digitech Polara uh, reverb, 
which does some really nice big shimmery stuff and that's only like 100 quid as i mean it doesn't do all of what a sort of big sky would do obviously but it gets that sort of big wash of stuff if you're looking for something hardware it's much much less uh, costly which is kind of interesting so uh definitely uh, okay um jem where do you stand on uh unison <laughs> <laughs> Um, <clears throat> well, actually, it's funny enough. I've just bought um, a 106, and I know that it's the, it, it's the world's worst unison. Cause well, you've got to press like, those two buttons, like, haven't you, to get it to... That's someone, yeah, someone like lining up combs on a line. Yeah. And just kind of like this kind of terrible sound. But I've just put... Um, I'm just getting the Kiwi mod put in it, which you can detune the voices Ooh. in unison now. And it's it's quite lush, or it, apparently it will be. So, yeah. That's uh, I like unison. I like It's very good, obviously, because obviously I have a sometime prog rock band and obviously unison it's brilliant you know because you can the guitarist has given it this you can go no take that 10 voices <clears throat> yeah so it's kind of it's it's i i like it as long as you get a bit of portamento on maybe because uh, the good thing about the prophet 600 was the uh the one i had anyway the the the, the two oscillators in it they were they weren't very good at keep catching up with each other so if you put the portamento on you get this lovely kind of arp quadra-esque kind of slewing thing going on so um yeah i'm i'm Unison. Nice. <laughs> I, I might wait for the Prophet 7, uh, just because, you know, then you've got... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I the Spinal Tap Prophet. That's right, yeah. Or the Prophet 11, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, I'm guessing you're going to have some... Uh, you've got it so that presumably you can make some videos, right? Yes, that is, that's why they've, they've sent this to me. And, uh, yeah, it's a terrible time for me. I love that I can use that adjective uh, because everybody sent me a synth at once. I've got three different new synths that I need to make videos for all at once, and it's it's pretty nightmarish. But uh, I should be ashamed for saying that because I mean, well, come on. It's interesting you say that because I mean, in terms of the synth reviewers' lot, I mean, I did before Mesa, I did three. In a, I did the Dominion, the JDXI, and there was some and the sub 37 and it, I, you kind of get into a groove and it's then when you're doing it, but when you stop, you have to kind of get back into it and it takes a little bit of time. So in many ways it's good to do them in batches because you're in the zone when you're doing that from a reviewing point of view. So that, that is the, the upside. But yeah, I'm very excited to make the videos. I'll be doing nothing else in my free time. I'll go to work and then I'll come home and do videos. And so that's you're, pretty you're much... living the dream, Mark. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't know where the riches are in this dream, but uh, certainly uh, the, uh, the synthesizer part of it's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, it's definitely great fun. But I, I think the Prophet 6, I mean, I, I remember because I interviewed Dave at NAM, and he said in the summer, so I'm guessing we're pretty imminent. And it seems like everybody else has got one. Oh yeah, I've got. There's, there's lots of people with. Uh, yeah, apart from apart from you, mate. Um, and you should probably, you know, yours should be coming. But I, I think stateside, obviously, because they're much easier to kind of manage and get. They don't have a, a center over here where you can just sort of pop in and pick one up. So it's not quite. I so keep easy. getting. A, I get occasional emails saying, "Oh, end of June. Oh, a bit of July. Oh, so it's 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 maybe they're rubbing it over." Yeah, they're quite possibly. It's one that's got to go to several people. So, I mean, talking in the, in the summer, have you got a lot of projects on the go then, uh, Jem? Is there is there more? I mean, obviously, this project that you've been doing with Gary Barlow, presumably, does that mean you get uh, you now you're his go to guy? I'm I'm uh, one of them, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a few things there's a few things bubbling under that I can't, can't yeah, discuss course. yet because 
I'm not. Well, I, I, I'm never. I'm never sure whether I, I can or I can't. So my default setting is I'll just kind of. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> in case I get the phone call going, what are you doing? Because I know so, Gary um, listens to the show. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> it probably does, you know. It does. No, no, he does. You know, what? he lo- he's a he's a real synth. I was going to say, geek yeah, 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 really. He loves he loves his keyboards. He absolutely loves them. He's um. The, the studio, their place, it's, it's a, it's a, oh, it's fabulous. He just collects all kinds of things. He bought a Jupiter eight the other week, and just kind of lots of. He's, he's very clued up. He knows his stuff. That's re- that. I, you know, I mean, that that shows my ignorance. That really surprises me because I thought he was more of a piano songwriter guy, and kind of traditional production, vocal arrangements, that kind of thing. I d- didn't really. Go, that's that's great to hear, dude. A friend of mine's been in Take That. He's a guitarist, and he's been in there like the first iteration, and he's gone right the way through. He's part of that whole Absolute crew. This guy, Milton McDonald, mm. phenomenal guitarist, and he, uh, in fact, Chris and Gary Barlow are kind of reasonably friendly. And uh, he said mm-hmm. his studio is just like stunning. Nothing gets in there unless it's absolutely top class. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that sounds really interesting. Well, maybe he'll come on the show one day. Although I doubt it. Um, and he'll go, that was really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may, or maybe not. Um, there's something else I was looking at here. Now, where is my... Um, oh, I think I've lost that. Hold on, let me just put this up. This was this, this was just a drum programming thing, which I thought would be interesting to look at. I think, because we all have to put beats to a lot of our music. This was on... Uh, it was on Attack Magazine, and it's a, an article by... Um, a chap called uh, Bruce Asher, and he calls it the psychoacoustics of drums, which I think is perhaps not quite the right thing to say, um, because it's not about the acoustics. It's more about the kind of timings and the variations in velocity and decay and all of those little tricks to sort of demachine those machiney beats. And uh, I'm just wondering whether or not um, there's any uh, anybody got any particular favourites in here? Uh, Rich, you, you let out a big sigh, so I'm just wondering whether or not this uh, <laughs> any of this has any relevance to you or not. But uh, there's Oh, oh relevance? Yeah. My, my examination of this topic began in 1983. What do you want to know? <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. That, the, one, the one thing that I've recently become much more... Because um, when I program drums, I try and not quantize as much as possible, which means it takes me a lot longer because I can't play. But variation of decay... And velocity are the things that really make a difference to me. Well, I just went through, I, you know, when I saw this topic this morning, I ended up going back through a whole lot of files of stuff I was doing in the 80s as programming experiments to try to improve my sense of what this article sort of starts to address, which is how to give some life to electronic tracks that are basically be, being generated from samples. And um, some of the tricks he features are stuff that's useful and that I've done, but there's just, there's a whole lot more. And what you just, just described about the way things decay and uh, the way, you, I mean, alternating samples is all well and good, but when I learned this thing, we were using a Lindrum and there was no alternating of samples. You had to create it in a combination of uh, loudness and timing. You basically had to adjust, you, you had a very limited number of things you could adjust to try to bring this about at the time. And uh, what I was doing, not, I mean, this is really, running down a long tangent, but I won't go all the way there. But I used to uh, use Dr. Click to send uh, timed control voltages into my Lindrum and to various other devices. And you could adjust the wave shapes in the Dr. Click. So you could change things like pitch and and uh, delay times uh, in timed increments based on FSK code. 
And you could uh, create all kinds of very interesting things in the drum patterns by doing that. And uh, I spent tons of time just writing basically experimental drum patterns and working on this very topic that this sort of lightly touches on is how to make these things sound interesting and less mechanical. And then the funny thing was is 10 years later, people are hiring me to make things sound as mechanical as possible. <laughs> yeah. That's a very interesting well, point. It's like wasted on some level because 10 years later, they all wanted me to basically keep everything completely, you know, on a grid and mechanical. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, Jem, do you find that you program beats? I mean, I don't know how much of that stuff that you're doing, or do you find that you, you, you generally use, because there are sort of higher level programming tools, you know, like uh, uh, stylus and what have you, which have all that kind of variation built into the, the, the control layer for the samples. Are you, or do you still get in and kind of niggle around? I with tend to, stuff? yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of those, sorry, the sun's right. It's, I'm, it's, um, I'm kind of one of those keyboard drummers. So ah. like, I can, it's quite easy to actually do the, just to play the kit like that. So um, with things like stylus, I'll tend to, because you can break the loops out over the whole keyboard, so yeah. I'll just tend to play it rather than just let it run. And you kind of, uh, I won't quantize it too much. I will do, obviously for some stuff, it needs to be quite sort of linear, but I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it depends on the song really. It depends on what's required. Sometimes it's like a live drum kit sound you're trying to get sort of to replicate, in which case, play it or I can do that or, or you know it's it's quite a lot of loops I'll then cut up in Pro Tools and move them around that audio I do a lot of audio chopping around so it just depends on what's required mm, yeah no interesting. so do you do when you're playing a drum track because if you're a proficient keyboard drummer it's a great skill to have do you tend to do a take or you do it in sections and then do pickups into into the turnarounds and stuff I tend to start off. Um, <laughs> to start off. It's like being in a rehearsal room with a drummer just just won't shut up for ten minutes. I tend to just do a lot of a lot of fills, and then um, I'll try and do a take. But then it's kind of it, it, you kind of have to get into a into a, a drummer's mind sort of set and and, and try not to because I get terrible red light syndrome. I always have, and it's just this thing. I go right here we go, and it's like oh god. So it'll tend to be it'll either tend to, either be, I'll either get very lucky or do it. But then the other things I do is I tend to have like. I'll do the hi hat separately, or you know, it's just it's it, it, it yeah. varies really. Uh, okay, and Dave, you, I mean, you have a history. Of, you know, you are a drummer, so uh, and yeah. uh, but at the same time, you know, you're using um, sequence stuff in terms of modular things. I mean, what do you? T how do you tend to tackle that? Everything. What? Just use everything. <laughs> everything. Yeah, no, I'm a bit like Rich on this subject. I did a whole series of tutorials for a magazine called Style Council a million years ago. It went on for about five years, and it was like drum programming part 987. <laughs> Trying to inject a little bit of feel. So, yeah. No, um, <laughs> Once more with feeling. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Just quantize it. Really. No, um, everything. I mean, I do use stylus a lot, but not necessarily with the loops. I mean, I use the menus and create patterns and stuff like that. And it's a combination of everything, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of keyboard drumming, little bit of pad stuff the one the one thing i used to love was i wish i still had it actually there was a thing called a drum cap and that yes. thing was hooked up with a sidequest drive and these great sample sets and they were they what they'd done is they sampled the left hand playing and, and, and right hand strokes so it was you kind of it was probably for a while the most kind of human I got things, but I again, you know, I did all those MIDI file things with Bruford and worked with all those guys, and that was fascinating because you, you see you where to people start their to, stuff, yeah, yeah. And I love that, you know, you're working with somebody like this guy Paul Codish who did like Firestar and all the Prodigy stuff, and you're looking at 
sometimes you're tidying stuff up because they will drift from the click, but you can kind of, once they're bang on, you can kind of go, oh, yeah, that's really interesting where he's pushing that. And then other times, because people like Bruford, you just go, I need to quantize it all. No, and that's a complete lie. <laughs> no, no, he was amazing, but um, it's just the emphasis. And I studied this for years and years. I suppose so. Yeah, sorry. I suppose I suppose the thing is 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 whether you're going for a, a real drummer feel or electronic drums to introduce drums into a feel into those. I know Mark I, I, some of the stuff that you 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 know when when you were releasing more music often had a live. I, I think it was a live drum track which maybe you played. Is that right? Am I right in that? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, most of the time it was me. I also collected. I recorded friends playing drums and then would use them. And yeah, for years, I did dance music, like throughout the 80s and the early part of the 90s, actually throughout the 90s too. And I went through drum machines and went through samples and I got to be a keyboard playing like a keyboard drummer too. And I used to have all of my drums set up on my samplers with the same setting because my hands knew where the toms were and my, you know. But when it got to the point where I started doing retro music and I wanted real sounding drums, I, you know, it's such a hassle to sit there and program everything to try to fake the listener into thinking it's real that I just, I gave up and I was just like, why am I not just recording drums? And one of my favorite drum tracks of all time are the drums to Louie Louie because they are so passionate and so messy and they really sort of take the environment into account. And I started to say, okay, the most important thing about expressive drumming is how the drums interact with the room that the drums are in, as opposed to how the stick interacts with the head. So I started recording drums, single mic, uh, in a, a room. I'd get a crappy old drum set and a single mic, and I'd find the place in the room where the drums sounded the most perfectly mixed. And that's pretty much how I've done my drums outside of like the music I do for the demos uh, with my uh, with my music that's an intro we, we talked quite uh, quite length uh, at length about the Glenn John techniques and the, the the three and the four mic technique which is really interesting if you missed that last week I thoroughly recommend we got some great insight from from the panel there it was really good but yeah it's a, it, it, it's it's a matter of time and timing you know you've got the the timing on the minutiae level of you know whether the hi-hat is early or late or whatever and then the time it actually takes to do that, which is on a sort of more zoomed out level. And those are the, th- I guess this is why uh, things like Spectra, uh, Spectrasonics, um, and uh, Rich, you mentioned something in there. Was it Addictive Drums you mentioned as well? That Does that work in the same way? That's good. Uh, it's sort of like BFD, but right. I like it better. So you can mix, yeah. you, you've got that control level of control over the mix as well, which is really... Uh, you can move the virtual microphone around the drum. <laughs> You know what I mean? You can, you can move it closer or further away. You can change the angle of the thing. It's got amazing, amazing tools. I really like it, and I really like them, which is why I mentioned it in the chat room. Uh, no, I suppose the thing that that um, people must be doing as well is, you know, maybe uh, or if, if I was a drummer now, I would be thinking, you know, maybe what I should be doing is going out with an electronic kit and these big libraries and going, well, look, here's the performance. <laughs> here's the, here here is the performance. Now you can just do what you like with it, that's, rather than mic the whole thing up. Is that what people are that's, doing? That's what Omar Hakim was doing in the early '80s. Right. That makes going a lot out of with sense. his Lynn drum machine and programming for people. Joe, my friend Joe Franco was doing the same thing. I was getting gigs as a drum programmer in the early eighties. I was get I, drummers used to hire me to sit there and watch them play and program what they had just done. Wow! I had exactly the same experiences. That's so weird, isn't it? 
exactly the same. It's so fun uh, during that period. Like loads of musicians just didn't want to be asked with MIDI and stuff like that. So they were like, and they didn't, you know, and produce. Everyone thought they were a drummer initially, and then they realised that actually everything they programmed was rubbish because the hi hats played constantly, no matter what else they were kind of hitting. And then after a while, it was like I, I, I had this kind of epiphany. It was like you know, having been a player for so long in the mid mid eighties, it was like I made much more money out of drum programming than I ever did out of playing. <laughs> just literally on call with the local studios. It's like, right, mm-hmm. I need you, I'll never forget this. There was one thing yeah. I was given, like one of those RX-5s, and it was like, recreate the drum intro to Money for Nothing. And I just can't. <laughs> <clears throat> because their attempts, this producer's attempt, was just beyond hideous. It was just like, you know, like throwing the drum machine down the stairs. It was just brilliant. Excellent. Speaking of Omar Hakim, that was Omar Hakim <laughs> who played that. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. That cool. drum intro. Yeah, and Neil, uh, Neil Dorfman recorded it at a power station. Wow. Well, uh, it's been, I, I think I'm going to have to leave it there because I've got uh, a, a chap coming around to help me with uh, the, the fly. Because basically, um, next week, uh, oh no, the 30th, there's a Brighton Smudgeler. A Brighton modular synth meet on the 30th of May, uh, and we're doing a little competition where people can upload a video of their synth setup there, and the, the Sonic State users will um, uh, vote on it, and they'll win some pretty good stuff, actually, from uh, Thonk and London Modular. Uh, but trying to get all of this written down on a piece of paper that will just go on the table next to them and convey how easy it is for them to, to do it is actually quite a challenging thing. So that's my effort so far, and I've got a proper designer coming to kind of go, yeah okay let me sort that out for you <laughs> shortly but i was i was been once again fantastic thank you ever so much for everybody and uh, once again uh gem i'm ever so sorry for misnaming you there <laughs> i might just create a, if i I'll, I'll do maybe i'll do a joke lower third for you at some point but there uh, is fair i don't know if you know lee groves but there is a similarity just to, just to, i think it's just face shape and i don't know where i even thought of that because i haven't spoken to him for probably eight or nine years so there you go but then i haven't spoken to you for very long for, for a while either but um, so, so, I don't know what you get. If you don't know the guy, I suppose it doesn't. You'd really like me. You'd, you'd get on really you well like with Lee. Me. Definitely, Jim. Oh, really? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, bring yeah, him yeah, on. Yeah. Bring him on. Lee, Lee was the, uh, the the kind of guy who ran the MIDI and the uh, sequencer rigs for uh, Spike Stent on, during that sort of oh. golden period of all of those mixes that he mixed everybody forever at Metropolis. Um, yeah. And, and he was one half of AMG. You remember the sample people? Ah. Oh, right. Okay. All right. Well, there we go. Anyway, but I've got you on, and that's more important. Now, anyway, um, thank you so much, Jem. It's been great to have you. Any other time you want to come on, just just hop in. It's always good to have you, uh, even though it's. I, I know you're a busy guy, and obviously, it sounds like you're doing eighteen-hour days, transatlantic shifts. So, well, it's just it's just the weirdest thing because um, it's, it's only Wednesday afternoons for some reason. I'm just thinking, all right, I've got some time. Then the phone rings. I've got to go and do something. Like, if you do this on a Thursday, it'd be fine. I'd be here every week. <laughs> uh, it would just change so. it would just change I know it would but anyway um, thanks ever so much Jem great to have you on board and uh, are you doing any um, uh, any any prog gigs uh, got any sort of touring stuff in the summer or is that not uh... no no no, no. No, I'm going, actually, I'm going to the, I'm going to the Brighton thing. I'm going to the modular thing at Brighton. Brighton modular. Oh, well, look out, look out for our guy Ed. Uh, he'll be there with a, a ridiculously complicated and fascinating-looking camera rig. So uh, maybe you can. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> I'll be there. Anyway, brilliant. Thank you very much. I also want to say thanks to Rich once again for joining. It's been great having you aboard as well. And um, look, for, there is no show next week. I might say now. I should probably say because I'm going to uh, Brussels. 
to see uh, my sister-in-law MEP. She's going to show me around the Parliament. Wow! Um, and I'm going to drink beer and stuff. <laughs> so, white chocolate. Yeah, chocolate and beer. That's what I say. Bring home chocolate. Yeah, bring home chocolate for the wife. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, she's got, we're all going. Actually, it's the uh, a family outing. Oh, it was a Christmas. And she can bring home her own damn chocolate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and there won't be any left by the time we get on the train. I'm sure. Anyway, thank you very much again, Rich. Uh, pleasure to have you aboard, and uh, thank you. And also, Mister. Dave Spears, over there in uh, G4 Software Synth Cave HQ. Thanks for joining us as well. It's been great having you. Very welcome. I'm so disappointed we didn't get to that Tony Swain again. I we if will for, do. If, if only for one reason, and it has to be when Mark's on here because he's an SH1000 fan. We've talked about the SH1000, and okay. that did that yes. baseline. Ah, so yes, I've got the baseline. I had it. I have it queued up. This was uh, Tony Swain, uh, producer. Who uh, we'll, we will we'll cover it. another we'll topic because it. it is a really interesting yeah. some of the stuff he did. Anyway, thank you, Dave, and also thank Mr. You. Mark Doty. Thank you there, the Bob Moog Foundation and uh, Automatic Gainsay, and uh, soon to come videos. All synth, a synth summer of videos, a summer of synth yes. videos. The Prophet Six, uh, the Korg Odyssey. And of course, the awesome Analog Solutions lights. I guess yeah. those are all coming, coming at you. Busy, busy, busy. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. In fact, uh, what have we posted? We posted uh, today. Actually, did a little presentation with the E Instruments Electric R, which is the Rhodes, which I have to say sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, like their Grand Electric Grand S and uh, sorry, Grand S and Grand Y. Really nice piano nice. libraries. They do yeah, sound lovely. Nice. Uh, if you get a chance to check that out, uh, it, it's well worth it. It's, uh, uh, it's the thing that they do, which is the bottom half of the velocities. When you hit it really softly, they just sound so beautiful. I mean, as well as all the other ranges, but it's very, the detail down at the sort of lower velocities is astonishing. Really sounds lovely. Anyway, that's it for this week. Remember, there's no show next week. And uh, don't forget, if you want to uh, enter the competition, uh, you've got two weeks this week. So uh, you just need to tweet the hashtag the mix doctor and ozone six add to at sonic state and at isotope inc to win your chance of uh ozone 6.1 from isotope that's it for this week thank you very much everybody for joining us i will now fade to black see you later <laughs>